Hey everyone, it's Patrick. Just a reminder, you can get even more high-yield learning on the go with the Inside the Boards app and our all-audio QBank. Just click the link in the show notes or search Apple's App Store for Inside the Boards. Welcome to the Inside the Boards Study Smarter series dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed on your exam. Welcome to the Inside the Boards Study Smarter series. I'm Patrick Beeman, one of the co-hosts here with Greg Rodden, who is the host of the Physiology by Physio podcast, and in six days we'll be graduating from med school. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, uh, in seven days, yeah. Okay. Well, by the time this is released... you. You may be a legit doctor. Ah, uh, that's a scary thought. Unleashed on the world. Uh, <laughs> all right, let's go right into this. Today we're doing biochem. Um, biochem is a fun subject. I would say of all the subjects, probably biochem and biostats are some of the most difficult to do via audio. Would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, they can be pretty tough. Well, thankfully, we have Greg Rodden here, so... I will take this first one. Interrogatory first, we're looking for which of the following describes the most likely mechanism for this patient's condition. And we have a one-week-old girl brought to the clinic by her mother who is concerned over her appearance. The girl was born to a primogravid 27-year-old female at term. Both the patient and her daughter have B-negative blood type. APGAR scores were 9 at 1 minutes and 9 at 5 minutes. Physical examination findings at birth were unremarkable aside from some acrocyanosis. The patient's mother says the skin of her daughter has gradually become more yellow in color, but has not noticed a change in her daughter's behavior. She's been feeding every two to three hours for 20 to 30 minutes at a time and has six to seven wet diapers per day. On examination presently, the patient appears well with no significant findings save for jaundice of the face and upper extremities. And a reminder, which of the following describes the most likely mechanism for this patient's presentation? So our answer choices are A, increased hepatic UDP glucuronosyl transferase, uh, B, decreased levels of meconial beta glucuronidase, C, increased clearance of meconium, or D, decreased erythrocyte longevity. All right, so this one is, I don't know, with this one I would say some of the details of the vignette may be more, I guess, relevant to step two or a shelf exam, but in summary, you're looking at a neonate who has jaundice on a physical exam finding with a history of no complications surrounding her birth and presently no significant behavioral um, aberrations. I, I think those are the, the highlights. So this comes down to what is causing her jaundice, correct? 
Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. Another uh, highlight from the vignette to help us think about this question is that um, she's one week old. So any jaundice that occurs within the first 24 hours is considered pathological. But at the one week period, this is more likely to be like a physiologic jaundice than a pathologic jaundice. Yeah. Shall we go through the answer choices first? Um, Because this is the type of question where you need to make a diagnosis first and foremost, and then you have to remember what the disease mechanism is. Um, So walk me through this, Greg, if you don't mind. Uh, Sure. So because we're uh, leaning towards more of a physiologic jaundice, than a pathologic jaundice, we need to be thinking about, you know, what causes physiologic jaundice of the newborn. And and we don't really need to be thinking as much about like some of those rare diseases like uh, Krigler-Nager or rotor syndrome or one of those kinds of things. So physiologic jaundice of the newborn is kind of a multifaceted uh, phenomenon, but it's not really a concerning phenomenon. It's not a concerning phenomenon if their bilirubin isn't increasing really fast. So the numbers you may want to know are greater than 5 milligrams per deciliter per day, or if their total bilirubin reaches greater than 17 milligrams per deciliter, um, or again, if the jaundice occurs within the first 24 hours of life. Okay, so what's going on in physiologic jaundice of the newborn is the fetal erythrocytes, so the red blood cells from when uh, the baby was in utero, they have a shorter lifespan than an adult erythrocyte, right? So the, the fetal erythrocyte has a lifespan of about 60 to 90 days compared to the adult erythrocyte, which has a lifespan of about 120 days. So one, they're turning over red blood cells a little bit faster. When we turn over red blood cells, how do we do that? Well, we do that by the reticuloendothelial system. So the reticuloendothelial system basically has macrophages in the spleen um, and also some macrophages in the liver. And what those macrophages are going to do is they're going to look at the red blood cells that are coming by them that are kind of being forced through the sinusoids in the spleen and the liver. And if they see kind of funny parts that stick out to them about the red blood cells, they might take a chunk out of it. Or if the red blood cells just pass the point of saving, they'll eat the whole red blood cell itself. When the macrophages uh, kind of take bites out of or completely consume a red blood cell, they're going to break down some of the hemoglobin that's in the red blood cell, okay? So when they break down the hemoglobin that's within the red blood cell, they ultimately produce bilirubin, right? So most of us know this as basic physiology. So because fetal erythrocytes have a shorter lifespan, there's faster turnover, and so there's higher amounts of bilirubin being produced. Okay, so that's one factor. The next factor that's going on with neonates is the enzyme that helps to convert uh, bilirubin into the water-soluble form, that's uh, UDP-glucuronosyl transferase, or UGT um, for short. So neonates have less amount of this enzyme working in their liver at any given point compared to an adult. So the levels of unconjugated bilirubin tend to be a little bit higher in neonates, thus contributing to physiologic jaundice of the newborn. The next thing that we need to think about is the transit time of the gut in a neonate is a bit slower than in an adult. 
So the amount of enterohepatic circulation in a neonate is faster than in an adult. So that brings even more essentially unconjugated bilirubin back into the bloodstream, thus contributing to physiologic jaundice of the newborn. Additionally, meconium has higher levels of beta-glucuronidase in it. What that will do is it'll basically deconjugate the bilirubin that went into the GI tract. And when it deconjugates that bilirubin, it allows for enterohepatic circulation. So it allows it to get back into the uh, bloodstream as uh, urobilinogen, I believe, is the form. Yeah, so those are those are kind of the three big things. So shorter red blood cell lifespan, less UGT enzyme, and slower gut transit, along with higher levels of beta-glucuronidase, all contribute to physiologic jaundice of the newborn. Got it. So overall, you're looking at, um, number one, our, our correct answer choice was decreased erythrocyte lifespan, essentially. Uh, as it was put uh, in the answer choices, decreased erythrocyte longevity. But so basically you're saying hemoglobin is broken down into circulating bilirubin, right? This is uh, bound to albumin. Yep. Um, it's unconjugated and water-soluble, so it swims around in the blood. And then it's taken up by the liver, still unconjugated, and then gets conjugated to or by UDP glucuronosyl transferase and becomes conjugated bilirubin, where it is transported into a component of bile and released into the GI tract and uh, excreted, right? Correct. Yeah, I, I uh, skipped that part when I was explaining what was going on. Um, so... I guess the question I would have as far as approaching this explanation and understanding it is if the erythrocytes have decreased longevity from 60 to 90 days, what, why is this presenting like something like day three to seven resolving within one to two weeks? What I believe is going on there is it's fetal erythrocytes that are continuing to be turned over. Well, you know, honestly, I don't know how to answer that question. Well. Um, I mean, it's because the fetal hemoglobin is uh, hemolyzed more and basically their hepatocytes and the mechanism surrounding metabolism of bilirubin is, is immature. It's got to find its groove. Right. Yeah. They've, they've got to kind of change the expression from the gamma uh, hemoglobin chain to the beta hemoglobin chain, which creates uh, adult hemoglobin. Yeah. Which takes practice, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Let's see, what else? Um, let's go through these incorrect answer choices. All right, so uh, answer choice A was increased hepatic UDP glucuronosyl transferase. Um, so that enzyme, it has decreased expression in newborns. And so that contributes to the immature ability of the fetal liver, or sorry, of the neonatal liver to handle uh, bilirubin. The next uh, answer choice was B. It was decreased levels of meconial beta-glucuronidase. And again, that's the opposite. Uh, there's increased levels of meconial beta-glucuronidase. I'm honestly not 100% sure why that's the case. 
And then answer choice C was increased clearance of meconium. Um, and again, that's the reverse. Uh, neonates have slower gut transit uh, than um, kind of children and adults do. So yeah, again, all of those answer choices were just the opposite of uh, what you find in a neonate. All right. What about where red blood cells are produced? Is there anything we need to know surrounding that? Um, sure. So, so there, there's like a classic mnemonic that I'm pretty sure is in first aid and you can find it elsewhere. It's a uh, young liver synthesizes blood. Um, so that's the mnemonic to help remember where red blood cells are produced during, uh, fetal life, um, until the transition to, uh, neonatal life. Um, so in the first few weeks, it's produced in the yolk sac. So that's the young part of the mnemonic. Then, uh, in the liver. So that's the liver part of the mnemonic. Then synthesizes, uh, it stands for spleen in the mnemonic. So we go from yolk sac to liver to spleen. And then finally, the blood part of the mnemonic stands for bone marrow. And that's the ultimate destination of where red blood cells are produced. I guess something else that uh, that can be helpful is understanding that if the bone marrow is having trouble producing enough red blood cells, other organs can take up the slack. Um, for example, the like flat bones of the skull um, can try and take up more of the responsibility, and that can produce frontal bossing. You can also see um, extra medullary hematopoiesis taking place in the liver um, and also in the spleen. Both of those organs can produce red blood cells. And uh, one more finding. So some of the torch infections, um, like the toxoplasmosis, uh, rubella, CMV, that kind of stuff, you can see, I think it's specifically for rubella and CMV, you can see uh, what's called a blueberry muffin rash. And that blueberry muffin rash is actually extramedullary hematopoiesis that's taking place in the skin, um, producing that rash. All right. Man, you... You're like the pathophysiology god. Uh, not even close. Let's move on. All right. So we're going to start with the uh, interrogatory first. What is the best treatment? A 22-year-old man presents with jaundice, abdominal pain, elevated AST and ALT, and golden-colored rings deposited on the outer edge of his iris. His mother has also noticed that he has become more clumsy and developed a shuffling gait lately. So again, what is the best treatment? Is it A, phlebotomy, B, penicillamine, C, succimer, or D, liver transplant? Well, that's hardcore. First and foremost, we've got 22-year-old guy, jaundice, abdominal pain, a transaminitis, and physical exam findings of colored rings deposited on the outer edge of the iris. Uh, he's had difficulties with gait, specifically developing a shuffling gait. So he has Wilson's disease. That's the, the first and foremost thing that we see. Also referred to as hepatolenticular degeneration, I would say the pathognomonic finding here are those Kaiser-Fleischer rings uh, described here as deposits on the outer edge of the iris. Um, so that's that's a dead giveaway, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. So now it's a matter of remembering, if you can get to the treatment, what is the most appropriate treatment for Wilson disease? So you may just know that offhand, and I guess... I will say it now. 
Um, the correct answer here is is penicillamine. That is the best treatment for Wilson disease, um, uh, especially at the the step one level. I'm sure it's way more complicated, um, but it's penicillamine. So walk us through why it's penicillamine. I guess. Uh, sure. So uh, a a quick shortcut to this one um, is just thinking about copper pennies. So copper penicillamine for Wilson's disease. That's like uh, one of the one of the classic memory tools that people will use. But you you really do need to kind of understand the pathophysiology of Wilson's disease for step one, because honestly, um, you're not going to see a question as straightforward as this one. Um, it's it's going to be a little more involved in all likelihood on, uh, on step one. Um, so Wilson's disease is an autosomal recessive defect of this gene called the ATP7B gene, which resides on the long arm of chromosome 13. Do you have to know that? Uh, honestly, I probably would. Um, anyone can pick up, um, you know, Wilson's disease or penicillamine or whatever. Like they really might take it to that next level of ATP7B gene, or they might want you to know like chromosome 13. Like, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they can be pretty intense with some of these questions. So not to scare you guys, chromosome 13, but at the end of the day, understanding the pathophysiology of any given disease, it will be important, not just for the boards, but also for your long-term, for your long-term practice. So certainly easier than just memorizing. Yes. Yes. Agreed. Okay. So, uh, why, why does this ATP7B gene matter? So the reason that this, uh, gene matters is ATP7B is basically, it's an ATP dependent transporter. Okay. That helps to get copper out of hepatocytes, all right? So it can do that by either one, putting it onto uh, apocerulaplasmin in the liver. So that's a transport protein that's made by the liver to help carry copper around in the plasma, so ceruloplasmin. Or number two, ATP7B, it can put excess copper into the bile. If we have trouble doing this, if we have trouble getting copper out of the liver, copper starts to accumulate in the liver and it can undergo um, like basically a Fenton reaction producing free radicals. So if enough free radical damage uh, happens to the hepatocyte, then you start to get hepatocyte necrosis, right? And so you, you can see those elevated transaminases, that kind of thing. Uh, you can also see like jaundice and uh, et cetera. So as the hepatocytes start to die, right, you can eventually fall into liver cirrhosis. Also, as the hepatocytes start to die off, the levels of ceruloplasmin in circulation are going to fall. And so the total blood copper starts to fall. However, um, which is kind of weird in, in Wilson's disease, right? It, it's a copper accumulation disease, but total blood copper is low. So it's kind of weird. But anyways, as the hepatocytes start to die, they also start to leak out copper into the tissues and copper starts to accumulate in various tissues. Some of the hardest hit tissues are, like we said, the liver already, so hepato, and then also the basal ganglia in the brain. Hence, we call it hepatolenticular disease. So when the basal ganglia of the brain are hit by um, this copper accumulation and basically starts to kill the cells in the, in the basal ganglia, you can start to see these movement disorders like what was described in the, in the vignette, which was the shuffling gait and the clumsiness, right? So you can start to see almost like, uh, like Parkinsonism type of syndrome. 
let's see. So that's, that's the basic pathophysiology behind, uh, Wilson's disease. And then, um, you had mentioned the Kaiser Fleischer rings. So in addition to, um, hitting the liver and hitting, hitting the basal ganglia in the brain, you can also see accumulation of copper in other tissues, um, such as the cornea, which produces those pathognomonic Kaiser Fleischer rings. So, yeah, I mean, you made a point at the beginning, like, remembering the physiology pathophysiology will serve you well throughout your career. Um, and that's that's true. And I would say especially on tests, because I remember when you don't have clinical experience as a, you know, a student in your first and second year, a lot of times you're trying to memorize, OK, Wilson disease. What are the uh, symptoms and signs like, OK, this person could have uh, abdominal pain. Um, they can have like neurologic disease. You'll see these uh, copper deposits in the cornea producing the Kaiser Fleischer rings. Uh, they can get a hemolytic anemia and uh, renal problems. That's like too many specific things, I think, to remember when um, you can simply know that pathophysiologically, if you can't get copper out of the the body and excreted into bile through the um, mutation in the liver's copper transporting ATPase mechanism encoded on ATP7B gene chromosome 13. <laughs> um, then, as a reminder, um, then you get this accumulation of copper in the liver, abdominal pain, brain. Parkinsonism type symptoms, cornea, Kaiser Fleischer rings, kidneys, renal disease, and your urine will be uh, will have more copper in it because there's more circulating around in the blood. Correct? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the treatment then is get the copper out of the blood, right? Right. So there's our answer. Penicillamine uh, is a chelation agent that essentially allows, uh, well, I guess it's actually cleared by the kidney. So you just pee it out, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then the, I'd say the only other um, thing to comment on here. So phlebotomy, that was getting at uh, like hemochromatosis. Hemochromatosis can cause, it can cause basically widespread damage to the body because of iron accumulation. Um, however, you're not going to see those uh, Kaiser Fleischer rings and you usually don't see um the Parkinsonism symptoms with hemochromatosis. Instead, you get that classic triad. Yeah, yeah. You can see the bronze diabetes. Uh, oh, God. What, is, what are the other? I, I can't remember. Cirrhosis, actual diabetes mellitus, and skin pigmentation. Those are kind of the, the key points about hemochromatosis. The uh, succimer, that was basically just forcing you to choose between two different chelating agents, penicillamine versus uh, succimer, which is another chelating agent. Penicillamine just happens to be the the treatment. Um, if you just remember copper pennies, you're good to go there. And then levodopa carbidopa, that was going for treatment of Parkinson's disease. He does have Parkinsonian type of symptoms, but that's not how we're going to treat him, right? We need to get the copper out, just like Patrick said. All right, let's move on. Let's try to get one more in here. Next question. Here's a short vignette, and our interrogatory first is, what is the underlying cause of the patient's hypertension? We have a nine-year-old male who presents for a routine well-child visit. On examination, he is hypertensive and has well-developed genitalia. 
Labs reveal hyponatremia, low cortisol, high serum levels of testosterone, and deoxycorticosterone. So the question was, what is the underlying cause of this patient's hypertension? Um, before we get into those answer choices, Greg, what, what are the things we need to notice? This is, it's a short vignette, but it's, it's densely packed. Yeah, totally, totally. So a uh, nine-year-old male with hypertension, that's not normal. <laughs> okay. Okay, then they give us some labs. Um, they tell us that he has hyponatremia, low cortisol levels, high serum levels of testosterone and deoxycorticosterone, right? So they're, they're really pointing us towards an adrenal issue here, right? So the potential answer choices that we should then be thinking about um, would be uh, issues related to enzymes that are um, important for the functions of the adrenal glands, okay? So if you remember the, the different layers of the adrenal glands. Well, before we get into that, what, what are our choices? Okay. All right. Before we, before we get into that. Uh, so our answer choices include, uh, Klinefelter syndrome for answer choice A. Uh, answer choice B, 21 alpha hydroxylase deficiency. Answer choice C, 11 beta hydroxylase deficiency. And answer choice D, Cushing syndrome. Man, whenever I see those on an exam, I I would freak out. But again, that's because I was a philosophy major and I learned the bare minimum I had to uh, to get into med school and then to get through it. <laughs> so anything related to the uh, cholesterol synthesis uh, pathway, no thank you. But I guess how to approach this? We've got I don't know. I feel like this is something where you have to be able to make the diagnosis because really this question is which of the following is the most likely diagnosis. It's worded as what's the underlying cause of the patient's hypertension, but mercifully uh, we don't have like intermediary accumulation of some substance that can't be broken down or like uh, the specifics of a I don't know. I was going to say enzyme, but actually both enzymes are here. But that also happens to be the name of the disease, these deficiencies. But going through them one by one, that's how I would have to approach this question because I I think with the question, what's the most likely diagnosis, given the elements of the vignette, I'd be able to go congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Right. Uh, um but that is less helpful in this one. So what else do I need to know and how can I remember it? Because we're thinking about congenital adrenal hyperplasia, we can essentially rule out answer choices A and D, right? So answer choice A was Klinefelter syndrome. Answer choice D was Cushing syndrome. Neither of those uh, have anything to do with congenital adrenal hyperplasia. That leaves us with answer choices B and C. So answer choice B was 21-alpha-hydroxylase deficiency versus answer choice C was 11-beta-hydroxylase deficiency. Okay, so if you don't remember anything about uh, congenital adrenal hyperplasia, you may have remembered that like the most common one is 21-alpha-hydroxylase deficiency, and so you may be tempted to pick that one. However, uh, in that case, you would be incorrect here. Okay, so the correct answer is actually 11-beta-hydroxylase deficiency here. 
So what's going on with 11-beta-hydroxylase deficiency? This one is an enzyme that is required to produce the ultimate product of the zona fasciculata of the adrenal cortex, which is cortisol. Okay, so to get to cortisol, you need both 21-alpha-hydroxylase and you need 11-beta-hydroxylase, okay? But the question stem gave us high levels of deoxycorticosterone, and he has hypertension. The deoxycorticosterone that is elevated in this uh, boy's serum is what's driving the hypertension. Deoxycorticosterone acts as a weak mineralocorticoid in addition to a weak glucocorticoid. So did did you mention that um, 11 beta hydroxylase leads to both cortisol in the zona fasciculata and then aldosterone ultimately in the zona glomerulosa? Right, right. So so it helps it helps to produce both of those. Essentially because it's a little bit lower down in the pathway, deoxycorticosterone is able to act as a weak mineralocorticoid and that's what's producing the hypertension here. Okay, so if this kid was hypotensive, then we would be thinking 21-alpha-hydroxylase deficiency. But because he has plenty of deoxycorticosterone, therefore he has 11-beta-hydroxylase deficiency. So 21-alpha-hydroxylase comes just before 11-beta-hydroxylase in this pathway, right? And because he has 21-alpha-hydroxylase, he's producing deoxycorticosterone, and it's accumulating in his blood. Okay. I hope that wasn't too confusing. Ultimately, this is the kind of thing where you need to basically look at that figure that shows, you know, all of the different adrenal steroid hormones being produced. Um, and you need to look at it and look at it and look at it and look at it and try and just get a feel for the critical steps. If you remember nothing else, uh, from what I just said, remember that patients with 11-beta-hydroxylase deficiency have hypertension, and this distinguishes them from patients with 21-alpha-hydroxylase deficiency, which are hypotensive. All right, cool. What about these other ones? Uh, do we need to address them? I guess we can uh, describe what else you see with uh, with congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Yeah. So I kind of jumped into like the the enzyme pathway and talking about hypertension pretty quickly. So one thing that you can see with congenital adrenal hyperplasia, um, specifically with twenty one alpha hydroxylase and eleven beta hydroxylase, is high levels of androgens. Okay, and that's because they're shunting a lot of their steroid hormone production towards, I think of it as the right side of that graph, um, towards the androgen production pathway, because they can't go all the way to the step of cortisol production. Um, another thing, the reason that they have congenital adrenal hyperplasia is because they're not producing very much cortisol. If you're not producing very much cortisol, you essentially have a disinhibited HPA axis. Okay, so you, you have very high levels of ACTH, that are stimulating the adrenal glands and thus producing adrenal hyperplasia. I don't know. I don't really have much on this one. I'm just like gonna just like throw my hands up and be like, hope you guys can remember it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's these are tough. Um, again, it's just the kind of thing that that takes a little bit of work. You just need to look at that pathway a lot, get a feel for it. You 
in all likelihood will have a question on this on your board exams. Um, so just try and remember some of those little tips that we discussed. 21 alpha hydroxylase, they're going to be hypotensive. Uh, 11 beta hydroxylase, they're going to be hypertensive. And then there's also um, 17 alpha hydroxylase. 17 alpha hydroxylase, they're going to have low levels of androgens. Um, and so you can see, uh, like in a boy that would present at birth with ambiguous genitalia because he didn't have very many androgens uh, contributing to uh, the development of his genitals in utero. Right. That part I do remember. Actually, I don't really have a good mnemonic for that, too. 21 and 11, you can virilize a female. 17, hydroxylase, um, a male can get ambiguous genitalia. I don't know. Yeah, I think this is one that it's probably helpful or essential to look at the steroidogenesis pathway. And if you can't memorize and deeply understand it, then to learn one or two of those diseases and the differences between them well uh, so that you can answer questions related to it. Uh, And just like a totally shameless plug here, if you're having trouble with this, I do have an episode on the HPA axis uh, that describes the production of these hormones and goes into pretty deep detail on um, how you can think about the steps. It's a whole thing. So you can check that out if you would find that helpful. I guess you're saying we'll have a more in-depth coverage of this that you can find on the Physiology by Physio podcast um, with Greg's phenomenal teaching and walkthrough of that particular subject. So I think that's all we'll save for today. But before we go, since it is a complex subject, what are one or two take-home points? I know you mentioned a couple, but um, to end with, what are one or two take-home points that um, the students can take with them on exam day? Let's see. One or two take-home points. Number one, there are three potential causes of congenital adrenal hyperplasia, okay? 21-alpha-hydroxylase deficiency, 11-beta-hydroxylase deficiency, and 17-alpha-hydroxylase deficiency. I said them in that order because 21-alpha-hydroxylase comes before 11-beta-hydroxylase. 21-alpha-hydroxylase is the most common one. They can present with either virilization or ambiguous genitalia based on the gender of the child. And 21-alpha-hydroxylase deficiency will have hypotension. 11-beta-hydroxylase deficiency will have hypertension, and 17-alpha-hydroxylase deficiency results in trouble producing androgens. So you're most likely going to see that in a boy who has ambiguous genitalia at birth. Got it. All right. That's all we'll do for today. Thanks, Greg, for your time. And I'm pretty sure you'll be a doctor by the time we publish this. So Dr. Greg Rodden, everyone. That is just too sweet of you, Patrick. Just uh, don't get sick in July, okay? That's all for this episode. We've got more in the Study Smarter series. Don't forget, we opened the second Listen, Learn, Live monthly contest, whose grand prize will be payment of your USMLE or Comlex exam fee. Just click the link in the show notes or go to bit.ly slash paymyusmle for details. As always, we thank you for listening and truly appreciate your support.